Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. We've got a full house today. We have got some folks in the studio who are looking forward to sharing some of their knowledge with all of us. Dr. Eileen Ogasawara-Chun is in the studio today, along with Gwen Judd, lactation consultant. And we're going to be talking a little bit about what happens when the baby everyone has been expecting has just arrived. What do new moms need to know to keep themselves in their new addition as healthy as possible? But first, we have in medical news a couple more guests that I want to share with you. We've got two more of the summer student research scholars from Hawaii Pacific Health on the show, ready to share their projects from this summer and how their work might just have implications for all of us. So for the first portion of our news segment, I want to welcome the students today. We have Morgan Liu. She has done a project on blood cultures and what do we do when we are checking infections and fevers in young kids. Morgan, welcome to The Body Show. Hello. Glad to have you here. Now, you're currently a student. What year? I'm going to be a senior this fall at Carnegie Mellon. Fabulous. Pittsburgh. It's a little cold over there. Very. <laughs> All right. So happy to be here over the summer. Now, tell me a little bit about your project and what, what, what are you studying first at Carnegie Mellon? So I'm going to be doing a double major in biological science and psychology and also a neuroscience minor. Because it's so cold, there's nothing else to do in Seriously. Okay, so (laughs) double major and minor, it's like a triple or two and a half majors. Okay, so tell me a little bit about the the project you were working on this summer. So we're looking at the role of blood cultures in pediatric patients with pneumonia. Um, The reason that this is important is because um, blood cultures help to find pathogens in the blood, but often rates of bacteremia are in the range of 1% to 3%. So they have limited use and also cost a lot when you do them. So we're talking about babies or young children who might Mm -hmm. come through the emergency room Mm -hmm. and they have fevers or they have symptoms of concern. And one of the standard things that doctors do is that they order blood cultures. And so are you finding that that's necessary, unnecessary, done too often? What what sort of findings did you come up with? So we found that doctors are actually ordering blood cultures in about 70%, 76% of patients that come in with pneumonia. Um, and in the year and a half that we looked at, there were only four cases of bacteremia. So we're doing too many blood cultures. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of blood. I mean, I think it must be traumatic for a family, a mom and a dad, to see their young child having all this blood drawn. And it sounds like we have to be very selective in who we do this particular test for. Mm-hmm. So if we were to follow the guidelines or maybe create some new guidelines, then we'd save babies a lot of blood. Mm-hmm. So part of my project is to look at what kind of risk factors there are in patients who have bacteremia. So out of those cultures that are positive, what are the qualities about those children so that we can use that to help us look at other kids? What we're looking at thus far is if a patient has an elevated white blood count or um, has two of the following. So that would be chronic medical conditions, was admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit, um, has delayed immunizations, um, has the presence of an effusion, empyema, or abscess on their chest x-ray. So those types of things. So if they're already sick before they come into Mm -hmm. the hospital with other stuff, 
if they come in and they're super sick in an ICU or if they have certain findings. Those are the people that should have the blood cultures. Mm-hmm. All right. So it sounds like in this case, we always think better safe than sorry, but maybe we've got to rethink that and think mm-hmm. better, better really be careful and not take blood and do testing if it's not really going to help the baby in the long run. Yeah. All right. Well, that sounds like a great project. And I know there are a lot of moms out there that are going to be happy to know that maybe they won't have to have extra blood tests done on their babies if it's not something that's really, really needed when they're in the hospital. So thanks so much for working on that and sharing with us some of the some of the early findings. Thank you. And hopefully things will go well with biology, neuroscience and psychology. Mm -hmm. All right. You're two and a half majors. Okay. (laughs) Well, it's cold. There's not much else to do over there. Okay, so you've got plenty of time to study. All right, our second uh, summer student we have today, Elise Chong. Elise, you've been working on some some great ideas to do with type 2 diabetics. First of all, what are you studying? Where are you going? Um, So I'm going to be a sophomore at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and my major is biological engineering. Fabulous. Biological engineering. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So, boy, you guys are blowing me away with these majors. All right. So tell me a little bit about the project you were working on this summer. So the project I'm working on tries to see if we are able to improve the complications in type 2 diabetic patients since implementing the health maintenance program. So basically, when people get diabetes, bad stuff can happen. They can have eye problems. They can have nerve problems. They can get kidney problems. They can have pretty much any organ can be affected. So you're looking at whether or not this particular program has decreased the complications. What's, What's the health maintenance program about? So the health maintenance program was implemented on August 2009, and it's basically an alert system that tells physicians such as yourself when their patients may need another checkup, a vaccination, or need to run blood work or other tests. Okay, so I see this all the time. Somebody comes in, they have a diagnosis of diabetes, and little flags pop that say they need to do a kidney test, or they need to do a sugar test, or cholesterol, or have a foot exam, and those sorts of things. So this has been going on for quite a few years. Yes. Tell me what's been happening. What did you find out with with looking at the complication rates? Have we lowered them? So we basically took the initial A1C report, which is how we measure the severity or diagnose diabetes, and those who are out of control usually have an A1C greater than 9%. So in that group, we were able to see from when they're diagnosed till the progression of the program, which was about four years later, um, their pool actually lowered, their, they're able to lower their A1C to less than 7%, which is in control, and that's exactly what we want to see. So when they were part of this group, they actually saw significant improvements in their A1C, that three-month average blood sugar value we look at. Because we'd love to have everybody, you know, no diabetes is below 5.7 or so. Borderline is at 5.7, 6.4% range. Diabetes starts at 6.5%. So you're talking about folks up at 9 with pretty high sugars. Yes. And they were able to get them down into the 7s. Yes. Do you think the reason they were able to do that is because of the alerts or is it because of the patients being motivated or what other factors might have helped them to get better? I think a big thing with this program is prior to this, physicians wouldn't really know who needs what, but this program really tells them, okay, this patient needs this. And it's not like the out-of-control patients are bad people. They're just busy people and sometimes they don't think they're out of control. So 
By getting physicians and other staff members on board, they're able to collectively help these people, tell them to come in, give them brochures to education classes on how to eat healthy, exercise right. And it's really a collective effort. Well, and you just said it. It takes a village. You know, it really is not just one effort of one person that's going to make diabetes a more controllable illness. It really is people working with their doctors, working with whoever cooks at home, working with lots of different elements of their lifestyle, their job, etc., to really try and help improve their numbers. So it sounds like this program seems to be working. You've got the data to prove it. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks to both of you for joining us today. These are the Summer Student Research Scholars, part of Hawaii Pacific Health Foundation's idea that creating scholars today to help bring them into the future of medicine tomorrow is going to really help the health of all of us in the community. And what better way than to start people understanding and knowing more about medicine when they're at their beginning stages of their future career. And good luck to both of you in school, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. All right. Now there's another exciting medical news little tidbit I want to share with folks that actually one of my patients told me about. So there in my waiting room was this wonderful magazine that's put out called Generations, which is meant to be a free magazine for folks who are of the 65 and over crowd or maybe younger who have family members in that group. And there's a fabulous annual aging in place workshop going on. It's the ninth year they've done it. It's this Saturday, August 15th, 830 to 2 p.m. at the Alamoana Hotel. And basically, a lot of the folks that we've had on this show before are going to be there, in addition to a whole host of other representatives from the Alzheimer's Association, from AARP, from different programs and services, Kakua Care, from Plaza Assisted Living, from Comforting Hands. They have a personal trainer. This is a great opportunity if anybody has an elderly loved one or you're in that age group yourself and you want to figure out How can you stay where you're living right now? Age in place, which means that you hopefully won't have to go to a facility unless you really feel you want to or need to. And what are some of the things you can do now to help really keep the odds in your favor as you get older? This is a great conference, and uh, I thank the patient who brought it to my attention and also wanted to bring it to your attention. You don't need to reserve any sort of space if you want more information. There's a number you can call, 808-234-3117, but it just to me sounds like a fabulous educational opportunity, and I'm looking at this whole spreadsheet of all the different types of lectures that they have available, and there will be something, not one, not two, but probably four or five different areas that people would want to go to. Some of these look great right now. Um, But certainly something to keep in mind. So that's another one of the news items today. And in addition, you might have heard her this morning, but if not, we're going to hear from her now. Chris Charbonneau, she is the CEO of the Planned Parenthood Greater Northwest and Hawaiian Islands Group. And she's now going to be telling us a little bit about Planned Parenthood and what type of services that they offer. Now, this morning she was on with Beth Ann on the conversation talking a little bit about some of the recent information about Planned Parenthood, but we thought this would be a great opportunity to hear from Chris about 
what sort of services does Planned Parenthood offer? So as we talk about mothers and babies in just a few moments, let's talk about what we do if women are at the point where they're not yet ready to be mothers or have babies. And Chris is here to tell us a little bit more about the services that Planned Parenthood offers and give us a little more information about why it's a great resource for women of all ages to really get their health care needs met. So, Chris, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you so much. It's delightful to be here. So tell me a little bit. There are some assumptions. Let's do a little myth busting. I I like playing this game. I enjoy it. So (laughs) I'm going to say something, and you're going to bust my myth. Things that I've heard about Planned Parenthood. And you can tell me yes or no, maybe so, or where'd you get that from? Okay. So let's do a little myth busting. Everybody thinks Planned Parenthood is only for women. True or false? False. We see men, um, and we are proud to do that, do a lot of sexually transmitted disease screening and treatment. We do vasectomies um, and uh, obviously offer condom and, and, um, uh, and, and vasectomy services, but also testicular exam. We teach men how to do that so that they can take care of themselves, too. Fantastic. So that myth is busted. They also take care of men. And you also do what they call expedited partner treatment for STDs. Is that right? It is. So what that means is, um, say, if a woman comes in and we find that she has an infection with gonorrhea or chlamydia, for example, um, we can send home with her the requisite cure in the bottle, so the antibiotics that are required, um, so that her partner can be treated as well. Or if the man comes in, um, we can give them enough doses for um, the partner or partners in question. Um, Main thing with expedited partner therapy is the idea that we're treating everyone who might be infected so that we stop the spread of the infection. Fantastic. Okay. So two ways men can actually be treated themselves personally, or they may get treated through their partner who might bring home medication if there is such a need. Exactly right. Okay. Let's talk about another myth. Planned Parenthood is only for people without insurance. Um, not true. We also accept insurance. And in fact, when people come to us with their insurance, it helps us fund the folks that are um, having a more difficult time. We don't want to turn anyone away, so we want to be sure that um, everyone, regardless of of their ability to pay, comes in. And the ones that bring their insurance with them, that just helps us get the whole thing done, and it's much appreciated. So I just want to reiterate that point. With or without insurance, if you have a concern, contraceptive concern, STD concern, et cetera, you can go to Planned Parenthood. Call Planned Parenthood. We'll take care of you. Okay. Now, other sorts of myths that people may think is the only reason to go to Planned Parenthood is STD screening. But what else do you guys do? We do a head-to-toe physical for both men and women. That's all the different body systems. Um, We're taking a look to make sure that people's bones are developing correctly and and that they're standing right and that their reflexes are normal. We're listening to their heart and lungs, doing all the basic things one would have in a really full workup um, that one would get at their doctor. We do blood work if it's called for. Um, We basically do the primary care that generally happens to healthy people. Now, if we find something that's sort of a deeper problem, like the diabetes we were talking about earlier in the show, or, or say, high blood pressure issues, we have a great many wonderful colleagues that we refer people to so that people can get really in-depth, sort of more chronic things handled. Um, But we're perfectly capable of diagnosing those things and taking care of them on the preliminary level. Okay, so not only is it contraceptive services, but it's also basically primary care if you're young and healthy. That's right. And you need to have 
routine stuff done. Now, pap smears, Mm -hmm. those are done at Planned Parenthood? We do pap smears. We teach people how to examine their own breasts. They they learn breast self-exam. We refer people from mammography in the event that we're finding anything. We want to look more closely at it. Um, And... um, Yeah, all the tests that one would normally have in a young, healthy person. And so for that reason, um, about 80% of the people that come to us are not seeing anyone else. They're generally healthy. We're not finding anything noteworthy. Um, We're we're seeing that they're healthy. We're giving them the contraception or the disease screening and treatment that they need, and they happily go on their way for another year. Fantastic. Now, if a woman has a baby and Mm -hmm. she sees her OB through that delivery. Do you often see that she stays with that doctor or does she come back to Planned Parenthood? Often once women start to have children, they develop a really close and appropriately long-lasting relationship with their OB or whoever delivers their baby. And we really encourage people um, to do that. One thing we would really like to caution women against, though, is when a baby's born, only taking care of the children's health and not watching out for their own. Um, We want you to see somebody, whether it's us or the doctor who delivered for you or anybody else that you might feel comfortable with um, people referring you to. Fabulous. And that's one of the things we're going to talk to in just a few moments about what happens after delivery and what happens when you have a baby. And we talk about breastfeeding and all these other sorts of issues that seem to be coming up. And we're going to discuss that further. So basically, the reason why a lot of younger people may go to Planned Parenthood is because if they've gotten older and started to have families... They may have established a relationship with a different person, but it certainly doesn't, a different doctor, it does not mean under any circumstances that they cannot return should they have any needs in the future. Absolutely. And um, many people, if they only need contraception, really like going to people who specialize in that. Um, and uh, and people are welcome to come back if that happens to be the only other need that they have or, or they liked the service and care at Planned Parenthood. We don't chase anyone out the door. Tell me a little bit about vaccinations and immunizations. Mm -hmm. There's one out there that I think we really in Hawaii have lagged a little bit in our percentage rates of young boys getting HPV vaccination. HPV is that human papillomavirus that we've now determined certain strains of it actually are associated with and the cause of cervical cancer. And in men, it can also cause other sorts of problems as well, genital warts and, and other things. So tell me a little bit about, does Planned Parenthood provide HPV vaccinations? We do, and we encourage encourage them for both young men and young women. Um, Basically, the HPV vaccine is um, a cancer preventative in a shot. It doesn't get easier than this. It's the only cancer-preventing shot that we have at this right. point. Kathleen and I are looking at each other smiling because it's it's really true. I mean, if, if we can prevent somebody the devastation of getting cervical cancer or other kinds of horrific complications, penile and otherwise, down the road, why wouldn't we do this? Um, we... When we first got this vaccine, we were sort of catching up with it because um, we we were sort of trying to get all the young women as they came up. The drug wasn't available to men because they hadn't gone through the requisite studies, but we knew that it should be effective on boys. Um, And now it's, I think, just one of those standard responsible things for anyone to have. Um, You know, it's a gift. This is this is one cancer you're not going to have to worry about if you take this vaccine in all likelihood. And I would encourage all parents to make sure their young girls and their sons go through the entire series um, and that um, and we get them all protected. It's it's a gift that that this was invented. And and these vaccines are just getting better as the new versions come out. 
Absolutely. I'll tell you, when they first brought out the HPV vaccine, they sort of set a cutoff on the age group and they said, okay, anywhere. And they started at the ages of seven up until 26. And of course, I was older than that. And I was like, darn it, I'm out of that age group. I wish I could just get it. Why not? Who does not want to be protected against cervical cancer? Let's just all do it. But it certainly is one of those immunizations that really it's to me, it's one of those ways that we can help promote better health in the future. Let's just do this and make cervical cancer a thing of the past. Absolutely. Not just in the United States, but worldwide. That's right. It's still a huge killer in other countries. It's a massive killer. And especially I worry about older women who didn't have the ability to get this vaccine, um, uh, who who may not get be getting regular pap smears and that might be falling through the cracks on this. Even if someone were to find that they had um, cervical abnormalities that might lead to cancer, this is the most curable, accessible thing we can do. Um, and it really behooves people to get in and make sure um, they let us take care of this because we might be able to just freeze those cells off and off you can go to your happy life. Um, this doesn't need to be devastating to you and your family, and the earlier we can catch it, the better. So um, make it a point to bring in your mom and your aunties and things to make sure they get pap smears, and, and let's stop this in its tracks. Fantastic. And if they, if they need to, they can also go to Planned Parenthood. They can come to Planned Parenthood, and the event money is an issue. We can take care of that. And there's no age limit. That's right. right. As long as people have cervixes and even after people have hysterectomies, we still want to be papping those scars um, because we want to make sure that those cells aren't doing anything that they need not not to be doing. All right. Lots of good myth busting there. A lot of good information and great way to sort of segue into our next topic, which we'll be talking about in just a few moments. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio, and we just heard from Chris Charbonneau. She is the CEO of Planned Parenthood Greater Northwest and Hawaiian Islands. And when we come back, we're going to welcome Dr. Eileen Ogasawara-Chun into the studio, talk with her and Gwen Judd, lactation consultant, about what to do when the pregnancy has resulted in this wonderful bundle of joy. What happens when the baby arrives and it's not exactly everything we were expecting and we still got to take care of everybody else in the household. As always, you'll be able to join us with our conversation at 941-3689. Toll Free Neighbor Islands 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Well, I wake up listening to Morning Edition every day. And if I'm lucky, I get to listen to more than, you know, 45 minutes before I have to head out to work. Uh, but sometimes I have really long drives in the morning up to the North Shore, and uh, it's nice to kind of be comforted by uh, today's news and some familiar voices. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. It's ambitious to try to fix the problems with public housing. It is entirely another level to completely and utterly overhaul the old model. This is our way of, I think, assaulting multi-generational poverty. Not everybody's on board, though. I'm Kai Rizdal. That story and the numbers from Wall Street as well. Next time on Marketplace, it's from APN. This evening at 6, following The Body Show. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital, Infinity of Honolulu, and Gourmet Events Hawaii. 
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio. We are talking today about women, pregnancy, babies, and beyond. Now, we just heard from Chris Charbonneau from Planned Parenthood, Greater Northwest and Hawaiian Islands, and she was talking with us about the different myths that we have about healthcare and about Planned Parenthood and what sort of services they provide. So I want to thank you for being part of the show, and you're going to stay and hang out with us for the next 45 minutes or so. Take whatever questions anyone has. Fabulous. Okay. And we now have Dr. Eileen Ogasawara-Chun. She's in the studio. You have arrived. You have fared well through traffic at this hour. That's right. It was kind of bad coming in. <laughs> uh, you know, is it ever good with traffic at this hour? <laughs> I don't true. know. And Gwen Judd, you're a lactation consultant. We're going to talk a little bit about what that means, what are some of the current statutes that allow women to breastfeed, and what should women be doing if that's something they would like to, to do, and how can they do so safely? Wonderful. Thank you for having me. All right. And as always, if you have questions for any of us, Chris is going to stay from Planned Parenthood. We also have Dr. Ogasawara-Chun, who I'm going to put in the hot seat and say, if people want to talk to you, we've got a number. And Gwen, you as well. 941-3689, toll free, 877-941-3689. So welcome to The Body Show. Thank you. Now, Dr. Ogasawara, tell me a little bit. Healthy pregnancies. This is something that every woman who wants to have a child would like to have. And are there any things that women can do if they want to have children to sort of help prepare their body? So it's definitely a good idea if you're planning to have a pregnancy to go see your OBGYN provider before you actually get pregnant, just so you can discuss if you have any health issues, medications, or even supplements that you're on. And just to kind of get a good uh, review of, you know, do's and don'ts when you're pregnant, just so you can kind of prepare yourself, plan trips, you know, that sort of thing. Prenatal vitamins, yay or nay? Yes, definitely a yay. And what's so special in them? So prenatal vitamins do afford a lot of the vitamins that women will need when they're pregnant. But even before they get pregnant, you want to build up some of those iron stores, make sure your calcium is good. They also have folic acid in them. And that's really important to prevent certain birth defects. And so if you're considering getting pregnant, get on the prenatal vitamins, go see your OB, kind of talk to your doctor about what sorts of things you should do to be as healthy as possible when this pregnancy is about to occur. Exactly. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about babies here. Now, we've just skipped through a whole nine months of of stuff, I realize, (laughs) and we may go back and review some of that fun uh, at any point, but... Let's talk a little bit about what happens once the baby is delivered. There's a lot of changes that women go through. What are some of those physical changes that occur after the baby has been born? Well, definitely it works from everything from the top of your body to the very bottom of your feet, right? So a lot of times women will notice they got, for example, for your feet, they got really swollen just after delivery, and they will notice changes in their body. And all the way up to the top of their brain, they may have some psychological changes, emotional changes that they notice after they give birth. And a lot of this could be hormone-driven. Correct. Hormone-driven. Sometimes it's from fatigue because now you have this newborn baby that's waking you up every two hours. And stress uh, definitely plays a role in that. So are there things that women can do to help mitigate some of these changes? Are there any ways, you know, you always hear somebody say, well, sleep when the baby sleeps. And you're like, really? Because that's all day. What? So what can women do immediately after childbirth to try and help them to get some of the energy they're going to need to raise this child. 
So I think actually the, the key is for them to plan before they give birth. So for example, make sure they have a good support system set up, whether it be with family or friends, you know, just make sure they have people that they can ask for help if they need it. Um, also, they want to do things like uh, plan out their uh, leave, for example. So talk to your workplace if you're working. Make sure that they understand how much time you want to take off exactly. So many times I see women scrambling at the end for childcare just before they know they're supposed to get back to work, and that's stressing them out. Really, they should have probably done that even before they actually gave birth. Well, don't we all wish that we would do a lot of things before something happened? I mean, isn't that always the case? But okay. So there's also some some physical changes that can occur. And Gwen, I want you to weigh in here with with the fact that breastfeeding is something that we're going to talk about today Mm -hmm. and that that may be a natural, healthy way to feed a baby and can also make some changes occur in the mother's body that Mm -hmm. can actually help them as well. I mean, we always hear about how breastfeeding helps women to actually go back to their pre-baby weight because sometimes it'll help them to utilize some of their calories to feed the child. What are some of the benefits of breastfeeding? Well, you mentioned how good breastfeeding is for babies, and I think that's what a lot of moms focus on. But as healthcare providers, we know that breastfeeding is equally important and good for moms and beneficial for their mental and physical health as well. So you're talking about the adjustment that happens right after a woman gives birth. One of the main things that helps a woman through this adjustment is actually breastfeeding. The act of breastfeeding helps to involute the uterus. So right there, it helps to control postpartum bleeding. Um, The hormones that are involved with breastfeeding are natural stress relievers, pain relievers, and they help this woman bond to this baby, which is a huge thing because if you're going to take care of this newborn all the way up through whatever age, you need to be so strongly bonded. till 50, (laughs) 50. yeah. You need to be so strongly bonded that when they get to be a teenager, you're not killing them. I mean, you know, I say that lightly, but... Do you have teenagers? Yes, I have been through four teenagers. Okay, so this is (laughs) why you say it. You say it lightly and say it with experience and go, been there, done that. That's right. And so I would look at these these guys and go, okay, I breastfed that child. I'm not giving up on you now. <laughs> I got you out of my body and breastfed you. Right. That's right. We'll it's... get you to learn your ABCs. Exactly. Okay. But for the health of the mom, it's not just the transition after she gives birth that's so important for her body, but she's got lifelong benefits for having breastfed this baby. She's got a lower incidence of uterine cancer, breast cancer, osteoporosis, less chance for heart disease. You were talking about return to postpartum weight. That all translates into lower incidence of type 2 diabetes. So breastfeeding is actually the culmination of the natural reproductive process. And so we used to think that breastfeeding was stress on a mom's body, was hard for moms to do, and now we're finding that breastfeeding is actually helping moms. So we like to support breastfeeding. We like to help moms get there because it's not always easy, especially in the beginning. Okay, now Chris, part of planned parenthood is planning when you want to be a parent again. And, That's and right. some women think that breastfeeding is automatic birth control. Well, I have to say it is wonderful for all the reasons Gwen just um, said, and so we encourage everyone to do it. It's obviously the very best food you can give a human infant, but um, it is not reliable 100% of time as a birth control method. And one of the things that's really important to do for women is protect their bodies against a pregnancy that comes too soon after the last one. Um, So it's very important to select a really wonderful method of birth control that you would like to use 
um, for the interim time to be sure that you give your body a chance to heal and you give yourself enough time with that baby um, before you have another one in your arms. All right. Dr. Eileen, what are your thoughts on that? What would be a good form of birth control if we decide, and I think we agree, that breastfeeding itself is not going to be as effective for complete birth control as women might have thought? So what are some of their other options? So they can do anything from a barrier method, such as condoms or diaphragms or the cervical cap. They can also do progesterone-only birth control, whether it be a pill or the progesterone-only IUD or the implant. And they can also do an IUD that doesn't contain any progesterone. Many women also um, uh, say that abstinence, they're going to do abstinence as their birth control after they give birth because they're so tired. But, you know, we always talk to them about that and say, you know, that's not going to be a realistic um, birth control for you. So it is important for them to think about these things beforehand. What is the optimum time after one pregnancy for which the body is ready for another one? We usually uh, encourage women to wait a year before they have another baby, uh, just because they, we do want them to breastfeed during that pregnancy, I mean, during that um, postpartum time with the, and uh, bond with the baby, and to give their body time to heal. So usually about a year. Before they get pregnant again. Correct. And then it would be like another nine months before they would have that, bring that baby to term. Right. Okay. What are some of the negative consequences to women's health if they're in a situation where they have children very quickly one after another? It is definitely stressful for them, you know, to have two children that are born kind of close in age because now you have two very young ones together. Um, so I tell women that's always very stressful, especially in the first several years of their life. Maybe when they get older, it'll be a little easier. I don't know. Gwen said teenagers. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it would be good to have three or four in the house at once. Maybe yeah. a 10 year, 10 year hiatus. Ten Maybe years. that's okay. what we're after. <laughs> <laughs> so certainly when they're young, it might be harder just physically just to have two small children. But then also on your body, it could also affect you later on in life. Right, right, exactly. You know, it does it deplete some of your body's um, vitamin stores, calcium, iron, that sort of thing. And it's stressful for your body to, to be pregnant. So it is nice to take that little break for your body also. Okay, so about a year between pregnancies, longer if if you want. Certainly, that's always a possibility as well. Okay, now what are some of the myths about breastfeeding? Because we just talked about how, no, it's not perfect birth control. What are some of the reasons that women tell you that they don't think they could? Valid as they may be, or they may think they are, what are ways that, that women tell you, I don't think I can because of X, Y, or Z? What are the X, Y, and Z, Gwen? I think one of the main things that women say is that my husband will be left out. So I don't want to breastfeed because then he's not going to be able to feed the baby. But that's a myth there because there's a lot more to taking care of a baby than strictly feeding a baby. Dads do lots of other things. All of the Put him on diaper duty, man. That's right. <laughs> you put All it the in, bathing, burping, comforting, <laughs> rocking, walking, singing. I teach dads the daddy dance so that after a baby's got a full tummy, dads can dance them to sleep. Moms can crash out and start getting a real nice head start on the nap. If we can get moms that nice solid nap time and dads got baby care duty going and he's bonding and he's doing all these loving things with his newborn he is so totally involved with the raising of this baby and he gets his bonding time too it doesn't have to be feeding time per se 
On the other hand, if he does want to feed this baby, once breastfeeding is nicely established after about the first month, moms are able to pump some milk into a bottle. Dads are able to do a little bottle feeding. He finds out really quickly that it's fun, but it's not all that. And so he gets involved in lots of other ways. But it's definitely not something that um, precludes nursing for a mom that she can't get her husband to be involved. He can definitely be involved. Now, what about some of the the, the legislation you mentioned mm-hmm. before the show started that there's actually there's a mandate that women should be allowed to breastfeed in the workplace? Actually, there are two laws on the state books right now, and one has to do with a woman's right to breastfeed in public. So any place that a woman and a baby are allowed to be in this state, she's allowed to also breastfeed that baby. So if someone approaches a nursing mother in the library and says, I'm sorry, you can't do that here, she can actually sue that person for harassment because she has absolutely a right to breastfeed her baby in a library, in a restaurant, or anywhere else on the street, anywhere else that she's allowed to be with a baby. So I just can't imagine who would be bold enough to go up to a woman and be like, you can't do that, as if it's not part of like natural human development. You know, it's unfortunate that we have to have a law in the books like this because you That's never true. think that a woman would be challenged and said, you can't breastfeed here. But well, unf- do you want to take care of my hungry child? Here you <laughs> yeah. go. Yeah, here Call you me go. in 20 or, minutes. Or worse, right. or worse, the women get relegated to some dirty restroom somewhere. Exactly. That's not an appropriate place for anyone to be eating. Not at all. And that leads to one of our other laws, which is a woman's right to um, pump milk while she's at the workplace. Um, and she's actually also allowed to breastfeed her baby on any mandated work breaks. But she's also now... It's, it's law that her employer must provide a clean, private, non-bathroom space for her to pump. So you can't say, okay, you can, you can pump milk for your baby. There's a bathroom right around the corner. That's a no-go. I mean, would you want to eat your lunch in the bathroom? Right. Not too many of us do that. Um, neither would a woman want to pump her milk in a bathroom or breastfeed her baby in a bathroom. Because the bathrooms smell oh so nice, and they're oh so clean, and it's not like there's any germs there. I mean, <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. these are, but you, I, I see your point, which is, do we really have to have laws in the books to state this? Apparently, yes, we do. Mm-hmm. But Unfortunately, for, yes. Exactly. But for women out there who want to breastfeed, you are allowed to breastfeed anywhere you and your baby are allowed in public. And if you're working, your employer is required to provide you with access to a clean, non-bathroom space for you to breastfeed or to pump during any mandated work break. That's right. Unfortunately, the law only covers non-salaried, so hourly employees. The assumption being that salaried employees should be able to manage this negotiation with their employer and find the time and the space on their own to be able to pump milk for their babies. So I just have this like (laughs) thought that's so ironic because Netflix just decided to give parents up to a year of leave, which I think is wonderful. But it's only for the salaried. It's not mm-hmm. for their hourly workers. Mm-hmm. How ironic. Yeah. Because you're telling me ironic. that the mandate is for the hourly workers, not for right. the salaried. So our federal law, as well as our state law, covers our, our hourly employees. Well, that's another education in itself. Okay. I always learn something new every Monday. I got to tell you, that has not <laughs> stopped today. I'm learning lots of stuff. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with a trio of women with a 
wealth of knowledge that they're sharing with us. Dr. Eileen Ogasawara-Chan is in the studio along with Gwen Judd. They're both from Kaiser Permanente. Gwen is a lactation consultant. And from Planned Parenthood, the CEO of the Greater Northwest and Hawaiian Islands section, Chris Charbonneau. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the challenges that women face as they are dealing with young babies and their lives in general, with their work, with their home, with their health. As always, you can join us and you can just give us a holler at any time, 941-3689, toll free, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. On the next Humankind. Step one is, is does the kid feel safe? Does the kid have uh, the ability to put his or her attention on a problem for an extended period of time? A congressman who routinely meditates says the skill can help school students to learn. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. This evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. I was, thanks to Carlton, the most criminally advanced nine-year-old in my fourth grade class. I was going places. I made no move without his counsel. This week on Selected Shorts, Coming of Age, from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m., following Travel with Rick Steves. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery and Kaiser Permanente. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Each week we're here talking about health and fitness. I'm learning something new. But nothing, none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Speaking of primary care, we've got some folks here in the studio today. We have Chris Charbonneau from Planned Parenthood. She's the new CEO of the Greater Northwest and Hawaiian Islands Group. We have Dr. Eileen Ogasawara-Chan from Kaiser Permanente, former colleague of mine, and we're getting a chance to meet again and talk a little bit about what's going on with women's health. And lactation consultant Gwen Judd, who gave birth and raised four teenagers <laughs> and survived. I think that alone is the most amazing part of, of your title. And we have you, the listener, as well. So if you have any questions, we're going to take a few that have come in during the break. But uh, you can always join us at 941-3689, toll-free from our neighbor islands and beyond, 877-941-3689. Now, before the break, we had uh, two off-air silent callers that wanted to have their their questions answered, and we love to do that. So if you ever want to ask a question and don't want to have anybody know who you are, please just tell our sound engineer, David, and we'll just take your question and we'll address it on the air. So somebody who asked a question about the HPV vaccine, it's not just one shot. There are several shots to this series. And Chris, you brought that one up earlier. You and I both agree it's a great way to prevent cervical cancer. Tell us a little bit about the shot series. Well, it's really important that um, people get all three. Um, they, they have to be spread apart. And so I think that that's one of the things that that is sort of tripping people up a little bit is getting in for the repeat um, parts, the second and third shots after taking the first one. 
but um, we need to do it properly in order for this to be effective. So we urge everybody to make that commitment. So it's kind of like a hepatitis B shot. The Mm -hmm. first shot gives you a certain level of protection, not as much as when you get a booster, the second shot, and your third shot kind of seals the deal and helps you to really hit that peak level of immunity. Mm -hmm. And we can't do it all at once for technological reasons, so we need to do it in threes, but you need all three to really, um, for us to feel like we've really got you the protection that you deserve. Well, sure. And the technological reason is actually your immune system likes to have reminders. I like reminders. (laughs) And the reminders have to do with boosting the immunity so that you produce the antibodies you need. Now, let's compare it to a hepatitis B shot. I'm pretty familiar with those. If you get one and you're supposed to get your second one in a month and you're like, oops, I'm late and I, I waited six months and now I'm coming, you jump right in with shot number two. You don't go back to number one. If you had a similar situation with an HPV shot, would you start all over if you don't get them at the right interval or would the second shot always be number two? The second shot would be number two. You have some time. So it's not like on the day you must be there, but we try to do these in in as orderly a fashion as we can. Okay, excellent. Well, and that's a really good way to, again, protect yourself against cervical cancer, but also if you've gotten two out of the three shots, you have some immunity, may not be as complete as if you got all three, um, but, you know, the shot's getting better. The the immunizations we give today are better than what was around even when I was born. Mm -hmm. And so as we are getting better at helping the immune system to protect the body from various illnesses, it just seems like the more we can do to help ourselves, the better. Absolutely. And and they're improving these shots um, by making them cover more of the strains of HPV um, that are out there. We know that there are a number of them that really seem to be the culprits in cancers. Um, and the more of these that we can sort of put into the vial, if you will, when we're doing the shot, the better. So um, I'd say take advantage of the ones that are available right now. Get yourself going and um, and protect yourself from cancer in the future. Fantastic. So that's the HPV vaccine course. The other silent caller we had had a question about pap smears after hysterectomy. And there's a little there's a little caveat to those. Dr. Eileen, tell us a little bit about the caveat to those, because certain women have had hysterectomies and there's different ways to do them. Right. So most women think of a total hysterectomy as meaning that everything was removed. And that's right. You know, a total hysterectomy means you removed your cervix along with your uterus. It doesn't mean anything about the ovaries or the fallopian tubes. So total means you removed your cervix. So if you had a subtotal hysterectomy, it means your cervix was left behind. And now a lot of women are doing um, laparoscopic hysterectomies. So they're doing their surgery, majority of it through their belly button. And so a lot of times when they do that, they'll elect to leave their cervix. So if you have your cervix left behind, even though you had a hysterectomy, then you still do need to do a pap smear. If you had a total hysterectomy and your cervix was removed, then you don't need to do a pap smear anymore unless it was for certain types of cancer. And unless you don't know if you have one or not, go ask Carol B. They can tell you pretty quickly. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> okay. I can't tell you how many times I had a woman come in and she goes, I think I had a hysterectomy. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I mean, and it's not like you can check yourself, you know. So, I mean, I understand. And they're not, maybe they're not sure. And for people who have had surgery 20 years ago, they just don't know. Exactly. And I think, you know, everybody's a little different as far as, you know, how much they push to know what's going on with Mm -hmm. their own bodies. And so some women do, you know, they say, oh, I thought I just tied my tubes, but maybe I did have a hysterectomy. I'm not sure. 
So easy way to check, easy way to know. If you've had a hysterectomy for cancer, talk with your doctor. You may still need to do pap smears. If you've had a hysterectomy for any other reason, fibroids, bleeding, etc., if you have no cervix, you're good on the pap smear. If you have a cervix, you should do them. Correct. Because it's to detect cervical cancer, and thus if you have a cervix, you want to prevent having cancer. Okay. Correct. So it's a little more complicated, but it's kind of easy in your mind. Yes. And if it's easy in your mind, then we can all see you and figure this out. That's exactly right. Go see your doctor. I think that's the message. Fabulous. You got it. Okay. Now we've got another caller in line. We've got Jamie from Kaneohe. Jamie, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for calling. Um, What can we do for you? I want to thank all of the women who came before who are making breastfeeding laws and the women like Dr. Ogasawara-chan, who is my OBGYN, (laughs) who is awesome. And all these women who have become OBGYN, so my daughters growing up have those choices. That's sweet. Thanks, Jamie. So mahalo for all you do. Thank you. Fantastic. And this is a great show, and I'm just really thrilled that we're finally coming of age to have these discussions like this. You know, we really should, Jamie. I think you're absolutely right. It's about time for us to bring out into the light some of the issues that go on with women's health because all too often, and boy, even when I started medical school, we were just looking at how do heart attacks differ in women than men? What are some of the changes that occur in women's health that we're not researching? So we are a little behind the times when we talk about bringing about women's health to the forefront, but I think it's never too late. What do you think? Absolutely. All right. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you for calling us and sharing your thoughts with us today. And Eileen, you have the fan club. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, and I think it is interesting. I think even since you've been practicing, I bet you've seen a difference in how medicine has evolved to really focus on women's health over the last, I would say over the last 10 years or so. We've really tried to bring it to the forefront and talk about some of the changes that can occur even in in postpartum situations where we really can help women to feel more comfortable with some of the medical things that we used to just kind of ignore. That's right. You know, before medications were only studied in men, you know, a lot of the safety studies were done mostly in men or um, when medications first came out, they only tested men. So we didn't really know how that applied to women. But now, you know, it seems like it almost swung the other way with the HPV vaccine only being studied in women. Right. And then they didn't study them in the boys. And so it kind of set us behind, you Mm -hmm. know, unfortunately. But fortunately for us, um, certain nations like uh, Canada did some studies in boys that we could kind of back up our our research on. So that was good. Well, and it was kind of interesting because where do the girls get the HPV vaccine? Right. I mean, sorry, where do they get the HPV virus? Virus, right, right. right. They get it from the boys. You don't get it alone. You don't get it alone. That is a very nice way to put it, Chris. You don't get it alone. And so, you know, making sure that you immunize both parties to this action is is obviously better than just immunizing half. And uh, I'm glad that the HPV vaccine has taken off. We need to get more young boys vaccinated. I think Hawaii has one of the lower rates, if not the lowest rate, of HPV vaccination in young men. And certainly something we need to work on. Yeah. But you mentioned something a little just a few moments ago that I want to talk about, and that is medication in women. And one of the questions that I hear regularly is women who are breastfeeding, and Gwen, please weigh in on this as well, who say, what medications can I take? What medicines can't I take? I'm sick. Am I giving my baby antibodies through my breastfeeding? Should I take medicine or should I not, decongestants, et cetera? What's the general rule of thumb, if there is such a thing, for pregnant women and or breastfeeding women and taking medication? 
They're pointing to one another. All right, we'll take pregnancy with Dr. Eileen, and we'll take breastfeeding with Quinn. Okay, so I think on. if you're ever going to take a medication, whether it be over-the-counter or a prescribed medication, it's always a good idea to just run it by your OBGYN provider just to make sure it's something safe. And, uh, you know, nowadays with Google, Dr. Google, I call it, right, <laughs> a lot of women can look up things. And that's actually kind of fortunate in a way because it can kind of stop them and it makes them think about what they're going to do before they actually go ahead and take the medication. But um, if you know you're pregnant and you're seeing your family medicine doctor or your internal medicine doctor, you know, definitely remind them, I'm pregnant. Is this safe in pregnancy? Or I'm breastfeeding. Is this okay in breastfeeding? And, you know, most of them um, are able to kind of look it up, you know, and and, or ask their OBGYN friends, you know, uh, if it's safe. And um, then it kind of reassures the mom. So let's throw out some common ones. Tylenol. Tylenol we consider safe in pregnancy. Okay. Aspirin. Aspirin is actually safe in pregnancy for certain conditions because there has to be a timing involved with aspirin in pregnancy. Not always, then. Yes, okay. correct. And so that one you really should do- discuss with your OBGYN provider. Advil, ibuprofen. I'm putting you on the on the hook, man. I'm just I could wing a whole bunch of medicine for another hour, but I'm going to stop after Keep just a few coming. couple. Uh, ibuprofen, Advil. Yeah, ibuprofen is another common one that women will try to take, but good if they discuss because that's actually a no-no when you're pregnant. Okay. What about uh, Robitussin or Guaifenesin? Robitussin's actually okay. So we do say to women that they can take that if they're having a cold or cough while they're pregnant. Pseudoephedrine. Pseudoephedrine is a little trickier because if they have high blood pressure or they're later in their pregnancy, we usually try to tell them to avoid that if possible. Okay. Blood pressure pills. Blood pressure medication is important because certain blood pressure medications can cause birth defects. So this is another case uh, or example of a woman who's thinking about getting pregnant. So maybe you should discuss it with your doctor before, whether it be your internal medicine or family medicine doctor or your OBGYN. You know, I want to get pregnant. Should I, Is this blood pressure medicine okay for pregnancy? And then they can switch you to one that is safe if, if you're not on one that already is. Because the key is that there are some that are safe. Correct. And so if you're on certain medications that could be associated with birth defects or any sort of pregnancy issue, then you can be transferred to ones that are safe and you're okay. Exactly. All right. Inhalers. That's my last thing for you. Inhalers. Inhalers. I always tell women, you know, for inhalers, it's safe in pregnancy because the number one thing the baby will need is oxygen. Oxygen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you can't breathe, they can't breathe. So make sure you can. That's exactly right. All right. Great. Fantastic. So that answers probably the majority of the questions that I get, with the exception of specific antibiotics, et cetera, from women who are pregnant who say, can I take it? Can I not? Now let's jump to uh, putting Gwen in the hot seat. Gwen, you can't be in a hot seat. You raised four teenagers. Nothing could make you, could phase you by now, right? (laughs) Nothing makes me hot anymore. All right. Nothing does. I'm not going to touch that one. Close to the end of the show. We're going to talk about medications while breastfeeding. So let's go through the same list. Tylenol. Tylenol, yes. Okay, aspirin? Aspirin, not so much. Advil, same deal? Advil actually is one of the, well, ibuprofen, one of the best medications when you breastfeed. So you can take ibuprofen? Yes. Ooh, so don't so much when you're pregnant unless you talk to your OB. Right. But once you're breastfeeding, the you, rules you're change. Okay. Everything really changes in breastfeeding compared to pregnancy when it comes to passage of medication into the milk compared to through the placenta. Well, and the baby's born. Mm-hmm. So, you know... They're right, already the baby's out got of the his world. own his own liver system working exactly. on his behalf as well. Good. Okay. Um, let's uh, Robitussin, guaifenesin, cough medicine. 
I tell moms, if they're calling in with a question, that you want to treat your symptoms. And you always want to look at what's on the label because they take multi-purpose cold medicines. And a lot well, of There's times, like five ingredients. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's lots of stuff in there. So, so I make them read me the list of ingredients in what they have in their hand that they're considering taking. And then I go to a resource that we use at Kaiser and many other places use called LactMed. It's a National Institute of Health, National Library of Medicine website that will will give you all the information that's currently available on a certain medication regarding breastfeeding. And so I very rarely just tell people, well, I never tell patients information off the top of my head, even if it's a very common medication. I tell them, hang on and let me look that up for you. And then I read it right off of there because they need they need good, accurate information. And that's something that's different about breastfeeding now than it used to be. It used to be, like Eileen said, there was very little research on women and almost no research on pregnancy and breastfeeding. And so the label of everything would say, not for use during pregnancy and breastfeeding, not for use during pregnancy and breastfeeding. Sure, it would make it that's, seem like those are the exact two scenarios, and they're exactly the same, and you're telling me, nah. No, it's quite different. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so what you were doing was the, medic- the manufacturers of medications were covering their liability mm-hmm. by putting out a drug and then saying, oh, but don't use this if you're pregnant at breastfeeding. Not necessarily because it's not safe, but because they didn't have any studies that would say what the safety was. So we've come a long way since then. We still find that there's lots of labels that say not for use, or it just says check with your doctor before using if you're pregnant or breastfeeding. Would it be better for women just to get, instead of the multi-medication, including cold medicine, would it be better to just get single ingredient? I, I think so, yes. I mean, I think that generally makes it easier because then you know exactly what you're taking. So a couple more I'm going to throw at you. Pseudoephedrine or Sudafed? Not a good idea. They found it drops milk supply by up to 25% with one dose. Yeah, don't go there. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And blood pressure medicine in general? Yes, Blood pressure medicine in general is good. There are some that are better than others that are shorter-acting. Long-acting drugs are generally harder for babies to clear from their system. So, again, you want to make sure that you're talking to your doctor, your internal medicine doctor, about what your blood pressure medicine is and let him know that you're breastfeeding your baby, and he'll tailor that medication to a breastfeeding mom. So that that way you can make sure that you're not exposing the baby to anything inappropriate that Mm -hmm. they might not want to have otherwise. Correct. Okay. So there's ways to address some of these concerns. If if somebody really has a question, they can always go check in, talk with their doctor, talk with their OB, talk with someone like yourself, a lactation consultant, and just find out, is it safe? Can they use it? And when in doubt, just don't do it, but check with your provider. Check with your provider. But the other thing is that women need to understand that their health counts too. That was something else that came up before. And rather than telling themselves, I can tough it out. I don't need to take any medicine because it might hurt my baby. They do need to find out, okay, what is the benefit-risk ratio of this medication? If it doesn't even pass into milk, and there are some things that don't even pass into milk, insulin being one. If it doesn't even pass into milk, then there is really no risk to your baby. But it could be huge risk to yourself to not take the medication that's Mm -hmm. needed. Sure, like a blood pressure medicine or something like that. Right, right. All right. Well, lots of great information. And you mentioned a resource that people can go to that the NIH has, LACMED? LACMED, L-A-C-T-M-E-D. Okay. Uh, And anybody can look stuff up. Anybody can look stuff up. And we we used to use a whole different database for our information about medications and breastfeeding that was not anywhere near as good as this. 
Fantastic. So we've gotten better. We've gotten more resources. We've really been able to help find ways for women to really take charge of their reproductive years, decide what they want to do, when they want to have children, if they do, if they want to breastfeed, if they can. And there's laws now on the books to help them with that whole decision and process. Fantastic. All right. I want to thank all three of you for coming on today. And thanks to our summer students a little bit earlier. We also, again, I want to mention, it's just such a fabulous conference. Honestly, I, I, I want to go. The ninth Annual Aging in the Place workshop that's coming at Banal Moana Hotel. It's free. It's great public information. And some of the folks there have been guests on this show. And so I'm excited to know that it's something we're going to help to have more people be able to age in their home. So again, thank you to Chris Charbonneau from Planned Parenthood. You're the new CEO of the Greater Northwest and Hawaiian Islands area. Thanks, Thanks. for being on. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Dr. Eileen Ogasawara-Chun, thank you from Kaiser Permanente. You had your fan club call in today. They think you're fabulous. <laughs> I think she you're fabulous. fabulous. <laughs> Thanks for uh, being on the show. Thank you. And Gwen Judd, lactation consultant, thank you as well. Thanks for having me. All right. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can check out our podcast. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here Monday on The Body Show. See you then. Thank mm-hmm. you.